But God, we come to you this morning and we pray to you because you are, you are the King of Kings. The psalm that says, why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? Because God, oftentimes we view ourselves as leader or ourselves as king. And I pray that, that in this space this morning that we will, we will bow to you and only to you. God, if there is idols that we've erected in our hearts, there's ways we've misused mind is given God, I pray that this morning there will be restoration. God, we do confess this morning that we have, we have not done things that we could have done. We have maybe even purposefully ignored your time this week, but we could have purposefully spent time with you. So God, we just come as a people and, and ask again to uh, drawn to your heart. God, we pray for our city and our nation and our world. God, we, just as we want to acknowledge you daily, weekly, God, we want to see our city and our nation and all acknowledge you. God, give us heart, hearts for those who don't know you. Give us hearts for those who are suffering. Maybe some who are very, very close to us. That we'll have your heart and be able to speak your word of love to them. And maybe that you would empower us to heal this world. I pray all these things in my name and Jesus.
that is like that. We call it a paradigm shift. Right? Where, where literally something that you have trusted, something that you have thought to be unshakable or true, something that you've built your whole life upon, all of a sudden experiences this tremor and, it, and what you thought would be there, what you thought would be safe, no longer is safe to you. All of a sudden you see it fall down. And, and ultimately, what is falling down, what is shaking, what's changing, is what you've put your trust in, what you, what you believe to be a sure foundation for you. The sermon series we're in right now on faith um, is titled, Faith, the Way We See the World. And because whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, whether you are of another faith or consider yourself to be not of, not of a religious background at all, um, you see the world through this lens of faith. This last week I was at Goodwill, which is my secret best place to shop for books. And, don't say my secret. And when I was there, I, I found this book uh, put up by NPR. And the book by NPR was called This I Believe. And it, it was this compilation of essays. They got over 20,000 essays. From, from people all over the nation and world who were just writing their, their personal philosophies. And what, and I got it, and I'm reading it, it's terrific. And what I've enjoyed about it so much is that people trying to put on paper what their foundation is. This I believe. The first one, the first essay of this compilation of, of probably about 100 essays that was condensed from 20,000 the first one was from a teacher from Olympic College. That's impressive, yeah? Olympic College. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and her philosophy was this. Be cool to the pizza dude. <laughs> be cool to the pizza dude because, and she gave four different reasons, like, because the pizza dude is working in just vocation. He is a taking your money, he's giving, it was like this, I don't know, I, I wouldn't base my, my whole paper upon it, but, but that's, the next essay was about a, a woman who grew up during the civil rights movement as a, as a child, as an African American woman, and how that shaped her, and her philosophy was, don't let other people decide your identity. And so, so this whole compilation, and the challenge throughout the book was this, was you write down what you believe, you write down what your faith is. And, and why that will be so helpful for you is because, and you'll be refining this for a long time, because you'll realize when, when the earth shakes under your feet, you will see pieces of that crumble. Things that you've held on to as, as true and certain all of a sudden will start falling to the wayside. And, and this is good. It is good to be someone. That's why it is good to read books like that, where, where people who don't think like you think are writing, because you can look at them and say, what do I think? And is it, is it firm? Is it strong? The first week in our, our series on Hebrews 11, we define faith as a confidence in God and a conviction of who he is, which leads to an understanding of everything else. So confidence in God means my, my absolute trust, everything I have, I'm 
putting into the God of the scriptures. Because I've understood, and this is confidence in God and a conviction of who he is, because who he is and how he's been described, I've seen come to, I've seen him make promises and fulfill those promises. And then from that, I understand everything else. So it's not this isolated spirituality, but it's, it influences everything else that I see. What that leads to is last week we looked at a faith leads to us giving our best to God. Our very best. And the example we have with Eric Riddell, this man who, instead of going for Olympic glory, gave up the potential for that, or what was perceived to be his best shot at that. This week, what we're going to look at is that faith finds joy in the presence of God. And the challenge of this is I'm going to segue from last week, which is giving God your best, to this week by going, oftentimes why we do not give God our best is because we don't believe God has the best for us. Or we don't believe that God is the best. Right? So, so we can be like, look at Eric Liddell, look at his conviction, and look at how the way he lived his life, and maybe you can have this like excitement, like, hero, I, I want to be that guy. <laughs> and then you go home, and you're like, and the fear in your heart is, well, maybe God isn't worth that. Like, why should I give him my best? Which is, which is a great question. Why, why should you give God your best? This is a question people have asked for years. Like, what's the good life? And it, it is, is what you find in God both true and, and better than everything else? In John 4, there's a promise that Jesus makes to the woman, this woman who has been hurt in many relationships and hurt others in relationships. And the promise he gives her is he says, if you, if you drink the water I have for you, if you come to me and, and, and take what I'm offering to you, because coming up from within you will be streams of living water. Like rushing out of you, overflowing. And that, you're like, sign me up. <laughs> that sounds great. But is that your experience in life? Is that, are you satisfied in your walk with Jesus if you are a Christian right now? Could you say, because I know, I know a lot of Christians are out of place where they go, man, I read the scripture and I see what it's saying. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And you're going, I'm having a hard time obeying because I'm still in this place of distrust. So what, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the next person in, in this uh, kind of hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, which is a man by the name of Enoch. And we don't, we don't get to know Enoch very much in the scriptures. His biography is very, very short. But I hope what you find in Enoch is that the evidence that you get to see what a life of faith is and how, how worth it, it it truly is. Enoch, all you get to know, I'm going to, I'm going to read Hebrews 11, which is up here, and then we're going to go to Genesis and, and read all of the scribes about him. So Hebrews 11, starting in verse 4, I'm oh, sorry, in verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found, 
because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those that seek him. So who is this guy? With such a an incredible um, memorial to his name, you probably think that we have a lot to go on this guy. But we don't. Literally, it's kind of all wrapped up in one verse in Genesis. In Genesis 5, chapter 24, uh, it says this. It says, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, because God took him away. Enoch walked with God, and God took him away. So, how does that help us? There's a couple of things that this helps us tremendously about. And, um, and it helps us because it's this paradigm shift for us, I think. I think the life of Enoch helps us so much because in, in just a very short amount of time, we see him on a very different path than a lot of us are taking. And, and maybe by looking at Enoch and what he did and the way he lived, even just from these this one verse, it will make us want to walk like Enoch walked. And so, so there's there's a couple of things from this, and the first is this. The first is that Enoch understood that there was two lives. Enoch understood that there was two lives. <laughs> And you might be asking, what in the world do you mean by that? I'll explain. So you've been given two lives. One of those lives is temporary. It is short. It is brief. It has an expiration date. But even though it is so brief, it by no means is unimportant. It's incredibly important. It is so precious because what we do with the first life we have been given decides the way we will spend our second life. The second life is not temporary. It's eternal. It has a beginning, but it doesn't have an end. And this seems crazy to a lot of us because we, we put everything in the first life, but we treat the first life as if it is two lives. And this is what I mean by that. We, we divide it up into the first part and the second part. So the first life, which is temporary, mortal, short, we go, okay, there's two parts to this. There's work and then there's retirement. That's one option. Another option is, oh, there's being single and then there's being married. It's having a, being jobless and then it's having a job. Right? It's being out of shape and then, and then all of a sudden, like, working really hard and being in the best shape of your life. Right? And so this first life, we put all our effort in that and break it down into two as if when we achieve the second part, 
then that first life will fulfill all our hopes and we can just invest everything. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? So rather than saying there's, there's a first life, which is short and temporary, and is meaningful, because you are meant to live. Investing, there's this incredible, incredible verse in Mark chapter 8, which says, how foolish it is to gain the world and yet lose your soul. And so if we invest everything in that first life, what you might do is you might be at risk of getting everything you dreamed of, your biggest dreams. You might succeed in that. You might be really, really good at it. And then you come to the end, you come to what you have succeeded at. You have not failed. You have, you have got your 401k, right? You have, you have become exceedingly fit. You've got a great job, whatever that is, you got married. <laughs> and yet, and yet you invested everything in that, and then you realize this life is short. It is brief. And, and Enoch is a different story, right? Enoch's story is that he walked with God, and then he kept walking with God. Because, because the continuum for him wasn't, oh, uh, I'm going to invest everything in my first life, and then we'll, we'll just wait and see what happens. But he lived in such a way where there was this continuum. And so literally what we get in Genesis 5 is, is, is like this epitaph. Of, you know, epitaphs, if you walk through graveyards, you've got to get to see this consolidated version of a person's life. Father. Child. Whatever, whatever it is. We... And then, and then what they lived for. Right? I, I, I saw, I didn't have this in my notes, but I remember this. I saw a gravestone once with a guy literally chiseled out him on his four wheel. It's crazy, right? <laughs> and li literally, like, like that was him. Johnny, he was a four wheeler, right? Enoch walked with God. And, and when the second life came, he just... He kept walking with God. In Luke chapter 12, there's a story that brings us into sharp focus. It's a story called The Parable of the Rich Fool. It's a very descriptive title. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through the end, it says, The ground of a certain man produced good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself is not rich towards God. They're sober words. But, but this describes what we're talking about. This man who, who he says, look, my fields are producing many. It's like, like when someone's like, oh, how's business going? And if, if you work in a trade that's doing well, and you say, oh, business is, you know, we're busy as ever. And they're like, well, that's a good problem to have. And that's what people would say to this man. Well, 
It's a good problem to have. You have more than you can ever want. So what did he do? He <laughs> tore down his barns and built bigger ones and invested in anything he thought. Okay, so when's the time you get to enjoy that? Now is the time. But that's not your security. That's, that can't be your security. That can't be your hope. If your hope is in this life, Paul says, then you have no hope at all. See beyond it. Give eyes to see what Enoch saw and became a man who walked with God in such a way that when God called him, he just kept on walking. Right? The two lives blended together seamlessly. In 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, it calls us aliens and strangers in this world. What does that mean? It means that when when you acknowledge the fact that this life is short, but it's incredibly meaningful because it, it speaks to what our real hope is. When we live that way, people will look at you and be like, you're an idiot. Right? Eat, drink, and be merry. And you go, this isn't it. And they will, they will treat you like a fool because you have eyes to see two lives. There's the first life, and there's the second life, and you're not investing everything in this life. But because you've invested everything in confidence in your walk with God, you realize you're walking from this life into the next. And people will not understand you. There's, there's a story of a guy named Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah walked with another man who walked with God and was taken. But the, the kind of funny part of the story is. Um, is he, like Enoch, as he walked with God and was taken, it says that, that his, the, the guys who followed him around, he was a prophet who taught a school of prophets, and the, the guys in his school were like, well, we're going to go find him. And Elisha, who was the protege of Elijah, said, don't go looking for him. You're not going to find him. But the, this other, this, this school of prophets go, no, and they, they searched for hours and days. They, they looked and looked and looked for him. Why? Because they, were, because they, like so many people, maybe you, are continually trying to bring people back to earth and be like, this is it. It ends here. And Elisha saw what Elijah saw. And he saw that it's not all here. And there's something way more real even than this, this temporary life that we live In a book by a guy named Philip Yancey, um, he writes about two conversions, and that literally means paradigm shift. It says, along with many Christians, I have undergone two conversions, the first from the natural world to discover the supernatural, and later to rediscover the natural from a new point of view. Right? So when we, we come to God, we're amazed by him, and we start walking with him, and we're amazed at his promises that we can keep walking with him from this life into the next. Then the second conversion experience is rediscovering the incredible love God has for this world. God has for what's present here. That moves us into the second thing, I think, which, which Enoch saw. And I think the second thing that, that Enoch saw and it described in Hebrews 11 is what we're going to call two pleasures. So you have two lives and two pleasures, and the two pleasures are this. One is the, the joy 
that was Enos in walking with God, and the second pleasure was the joy God had walking with Enoch. What's so crazy beautiful about this is that it's not when, when we walk with God, um, the word benefit would be a strange one to use, so I won't use that one, but um, we're not the only one that looks forward to that. In one of the Christmas hymns, it talks about Jesus coming. It says, Thou pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Which means that Jesus was happy to dwell with us. Pleasure of God to walk people. I think too often times we have this view that God is reluctant to save us. That, that God's like, well, you screwed every other opportunity up. I guess I'm going to do this one. No, no it's just God so loved the world, right? Wait, how can you not be more familiar with the verse than that? And yet you just believe it, right? I do. Um, because God actually was pretty giddy about this world that he, he came. And so the pleasure goes both ways. In Amos 3.3, 3, there's this terrific verse that speaks, I think, to the, the Enoch walking with God. It says, how can two walk together unless they're in agreement? How can two walk together unless they're in agreement? And you see, what, who's Enoch? Enoch is a man who walks with God. And how can two walk together unless they're in agreement? And, and that's what you see. Two pleasures. God and man, Enoch and his Lord, walking together in agreement. Does God have what's best for you? But we're going to answer from the first two lives. Yes, God has what's best for you, because God isn't just investing all in right now. Like God's welcoming you into something eternal. And if you can't see that, if you just want him to fix now, you won't see it. But God's welcoming you into eternal view. The second thing is that two pleasures. And God wants what's best for you, yes, because he wants to walk in agreement with you. He wants you to see his goodness. To understand that and walk in agreement. There's this incredible portrait that was drawn by a, a word portrait um, by a guy named Jonathan Edwards who is known as um, kind of like the, well, both the most well-known American theologian ever and, and actually the best-known um, American philosopher ever. And, um, and there's a sketch he, he draws of his wife before they were married. And this is near to my heart, and part of the reason why it's near to my heart is because when I read it the first time I was in high school, and I wrote it on a piece of paper, and since then I've been carrying it in my wallet. That's how much it impacted me. I could actually, you guys want to see it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll show you. You might have to take this off, because the people who are listening on the recording won't be able to see it. So this, it's, it's very tattered now, 
This is it. <laughs> it's been through a lot of a laundry. So, now after my little show and tell, <laughs> Jonathan Edwards draws this sketch of his wife. And what's so cool about this is because you see a, a woman who likes to make he says, they say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world. And that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceedingly sweet delight. And that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. That she expects after a while to be received up where he is to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him. There she is to dwell with him and be ravished with his love and delight forever. Therefore, you present all the world before her with the richest of its treasure, disregards it and cares not for it, and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and singular purity in her affections. She is most just and conscientious, conscientious in all her actions, and you cannot persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful that you would do for all the world, lest she offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness and calmness and universal benevolence of mind, especially after those seasons in which this great God has manifested himself in her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly, and seems to be always of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, and to wander in the fields, and on the mountains, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. extraordinary portrait. But she is not alone. I know that many of you, either presently or at one time, have even experienced this tremendous in the presence of God. King David writes similarly. He says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him? And another psalm, he says, You make known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Right? This is what's being offered. Not just two lives, but two pleasures that, that as you... Make it your chief end, like the Caxton says, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That, that you realize that God deeply enjoys you also. And, and Enoch understood that. That's what it meant for you to walk with God. From this life into the next, and to enjoy Him and be enjoyed by Him. How does this happen? The way it described it here. In Hebrews 11, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. And this is the two things I want you to grab a hold of. It says, Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. 
two things. On the garden, he says that, so that you believe that he exists and then that he rewards those that seek him. And the challenge is this for many of us is wrestling through that first part. Do you, do you believe that God exists? And what does that mean for you? What does it mean for you to say, I believe, I believe that God, the God of the scripture, exists. And I, I put my complete faith in my confidence in him. And, and what, again, then, what he promised me, what he promised as a reward. In 1 Peter, it ties together these two concepts really, really well. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the, the Christians are in this place where we, we know that there is a challenge putting your faith in God. The challenge of the invisibility of God. Right. And so it, it addresses that in the scripture, which is absolutely gorgeous. And so, so as you read the scripture and it turns your eyes to this God who is calling your attention to the present to the eternal, and to open your heart to him, to not just with courage trust him, and say, God, do you have, like it's like King David says, pleasures at your right hand forever. And learning to, to put your complete confidence in him. Our faith is built upon an incredibly long history. But it has to move from that. It even has to move from you going. I see the God in the scriptures, how he's He's conquering kingdoms and how he's rescuing people and how he's sending Jesus, God who becomes flesh and dwells among people. And you can see those as very, like, we can go there and we can go historical facts, historical facts, right? But then there's that moment where you, yourself, have to say, you are my God. Like, like I, I'm... Because sometimes you have a lot easier time hoping for the disciples who are doubting Jesus than you have hoping for yourself, right? The disciples who, who see Jesus crucified and are doubting him, and you're like rooting for him. You're like, no, he's coming back, right? And you're like, because <laughs> we're familiar with the Easter story. And then you see it all, and you're like, you have tremendous hope for the restoration. But then maybe you're, you're at that point. <laughs> Where are you going to take that step that the disciples made themselves? To the God who created the world, loved the world, came back to restore the world, it is my God. And, and at that point, you join Enoch, right? There's no other path to enjoying God than an all-out walking with God from this life into the next. It's a no-hold-hard thing. So, that is, and that's our prayer, is that we would be people who don't just admire those 
yourself move to that place of saying, you are my God. And, and when Sarah Pierpont, John Leonard's wife, like Enoch, like Elijah, like Moses, like Eric and Bell, um, you set yourself wholeheartedly forward. And that is something that I, guys, I just welcome you guys into, and, and I want to do with you. I want to walk with you as we walk with God together. And when I don't see clearly, I need you guys to slap me in the face, metaphorically, <laughs> and wake me up. Sometimes I really need it, I don't know. Um, but I, I need you guys, just as much as you need me, right? Mutually. To go, how have you experienced God this week? How have you seen it? How have you seen him at work in your life? And maybe when I don't have a story to share, I'll hear your story, and it's going to help me tremendously, because there are people too often that just put everything in the heart. And sometimes I need your eyes to see. Sometimes you need my eyes to see. God, let's, let's put our whole hope there and walk there together as a church. Pray for me in worship. Thank you.